I need to be present to the what that person's bringing me and my stuff will get addressed, but just not here in this first second. That is a ton of work. I have not perfected this. I am intrigued by the studies about what the world will be like and how we will or will not connect. This is Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper, and this will be part two of my conversation with Nicole Milleran. She is a clinical therapist and co-owner of Brave Spaces here in La Crosse. And she's also somebody who happens to like an interesting conversation just about as much as I do. So when we come back, we'll get right into that conversation with Nicole Milleran on Around River City. This is Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper. You can find this podcast anywhere you download your podcast. It's absolutely free to do that. You can even subscribe to the podcast at aroundrivercity.com. That's also free. And then you'll get a notification every time there's a new episode that you don't want to miss. So let's get right back into my conversation with Nicole Millerin of Brave Spaces. And we'll jump back into things just as I asked what I think has become my new favorite question. Tell me about... 10-year-old Nicole. Ooh, 10. So I was living in Milwaukee with my mom. And, Is that where you were born? Um, yes. Okay. Yep. What, what part? Um, North Valit. Ooh. I'm from Southside, 60th in Oklahoma. Ooh. Um, and we lived in a neighborhood where we could stay on our block, and that's it. Okay. We could go to the corner store, and we never could go around to the other blocks. Um, and literally, I never did. Like, Can I ask when this was? Yeah, 19, uh, so 1980. 1980. That's when I was 10. Um, so I was born in 70. And then um, my mom and her husband moved us to La Crosse to have a quote-unquote better life, you know, get out of the big city. Hmm. So moved my, here when I was 10. My mom and dad did a similar thing. My dad retired at 62, worked for the city of Milwaukee, the school board, and worked as an electrician in schools. And he retired at 62. I had just finished eighth grade. My brother, Tony, had finished his junior year of high school, and he was spiraling downward with drugs fast. Mm. And my mom and dad did what I think a lot of, I think it was, they did this for their family and for their child. They gave up their home in Milwaukee and they moved us to a very small town wow. in northwest Wisconsin for very called Webster, Wisconsin. Tiny. 502 people. Wow. Um, there are graduating classes that yeah. are bigger than that whole <laughs> right? town. And they were shocked to learn that there were drugs there as well and even less to do yes. <laughs> to distract you from that. Exactly. Um, so I hope hope this your move worked out a little bit better for you. Yeah, it, uh, this is a, this is, I, I met my childhood friend who we're still friends now. So 42 years we've been friends. Um, this is an amazing uh, place to raise kids and I, I really, really like it. I mean, I went to school here, graduate school, undergrad, stayed in this area. My parents have always lived close. Um, so, oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. Why are you a therapist? Is that your uh, actual title, a therapist? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when I was probably seven or eight, I was playing with my friends, and there was two of my girlfriends. There's three of us that always hung out. And we were getting in fights, and I kept thinking, 
I wonder why they're thinking that. I wonder why are <laughs> why are they thinking that? Why? Hmm. And I just came became fascinated with people and the why we think the way we do and how we work and there's that word why, right? Um I was just intrigued and from that point forward I knew that I was going to be a therapist. You must at 7 or 8 did you even know that existed as a career? Um I thought I was going to be a psychologist. I knew that word. Okay. <laughs> and I knew the money behind that word. Okay. <laughs> and I didn't go <laughs> I didn't end up doing that, but Well, I hope it's fair to ask what is the difference? Because well, Uh, well, psychologist and psychiatrist are different. And actually, I I have nice friends who are psychiatrists, and I'm glad that I'm not a psychiatrist because their training is definitely about here's your issue and what is the medication that solves your issue. I am I like the mentality, and not that my again, not that my colleagues don't think this way. of uh, it's less about the diagnosis, less about the meds that would you might need, and more about let's get underneath that. Let's talk about what's happened to you, not what's wrong with you. So it's more about getting to understand the evolution of the person that sits before me, because it's not necessarily the person that sits before me is not just that person. They are all of what came before them, and even more before they were even born. The generational ties that are threaded through who we are is pretty amazing. And sometimes we are enacting um, patterns from our grandparents. Yeah. (laughs) Sarah just said she's screwed. Um, (laughs) How does, how? Yeah. So, I mean, this is mind blowing, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about alcoholism. So oftentimes, and there are people who still believe that alcoholism is a genetic trait. And I was raised that way. My dad was an alcoholic. And there's four kids in my family, and we were all told, you know, you better be careful when you drink, right? There, You've got this genetic alcohol gene. Um, and as I learn about patterns, and as I learn about the way that we raise our children, so m- my dad's dad was an alcoholic as well. Part of alcoholism, and I'm not saying everyone's pattern is like this, but when my pain is so big, I need a drink to escape. Because if my pain, when my pain is so big, if I had a partner or a process or a way to get through my pain and talk about it and work through the pain, I wouldn't need to drink to the extent of alcoholism, right? I mean, I can have a drink after work just to like debrief or just like wind down so when I I know less about my grandfather but I know a ton about my dad so he was six one and skinny 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 and he got picked on and bullied and then he was got physically abused by his stepdad growing up so he never could talk about his thoughts or feelings he was always put down he was always belittled so then when he grew into his six footness Um, and he was out in the world and people saw him now as a six foot man, but really he was the scared little boy inside and it never matched. He didn't know how to talk about his thoughts and feelings. He didn't know how to express his vulnerabilities. He definitely saw vulnerability as a very, very horrible thing. And so because he couldn't express any of those things, 
he drank. Now, hmm. out of the four of us, my parents divorced when I was three. So us kids were three, five, seven, ten. Um, single mom then, four kids, um, three girls and a boy. The only son of my dad, you would think, would then be kind of relished, right? He's the boy. He's, um, that didn't happen. He was never perfect enough for my dad. And then being from a broken home, and then my dad moves away. And so my brother doesn't have the guidance, nor does he have a parent who knows how to receive his thoughts and feelings. He drinks. So it would look as if, sure enough, he was bitten it's by the genetic, genetic bug of alcoholism. It's not. It's the way that the evolution of our family of not talking about thoughts and feelings, not ex being to able to express. So, um, you know, how we break that genetic code or the, the theory of the genetic code that I believe is not actually real is when I've now raised my children is talking about and how when you've got thoughts and feelings how do you express those and not turn to something to cover it up such as alcoholism or any other addictive patterns so it was a really long answer no that's it's kind of mind-blowing um, I think we all know people like that and it makes me wonder you know my dad died when I was 15 almost 16 uh, my mom died when I was 25, mm -hmm. and especially with my dad, it was very sudden. And when you're 15, the last person in the world you want to talk to is your dad or your mom or any, mm -hmm. you know. Right. So I feel like, and then I had moved away when I was 18, went to school, and then started my career in radio and was moving all sure. over the country. And then my, I was living in North Carolina when my mom was dying, and I came back here and... Mm. So one of the things I deal with is I know I am messed up in a lot of ways. I know I have lots of issues, but I have no idea why. Mm. <laughs> or not that it's always all of their fault, but I, yeah. I do wonder where this, if this is a learned behavior, where did it come from? And mm -hmm. I wish, I suppose we all have this wish. I wish I had talked to them yeah. a little bit more. Yeah. And maybe, maybe if, you know, if I was lucky enough to be one of those people that has a parent stay alive while I move into middle age mm -hmm. and start thinking about those things, then you can ask them. Yeah, because as we try to work through our own stuff, we understand the threads of my stuff connected to my parents. So I have one thread that's connected to my mom and one thread that's connected to my dad about who I am as a person, right, and how I've developed. Mm -hmm. And as we try to develop our best patterns in relationships, I believe that we first need to also understand the patterns of that thread. So when I talked with my dad, thankfully, because I often saw my dad as this egocentric womanizer. I mean, he cheated on my mom. He had tons of money when my mom lived on welfare with four kids. I mean, I have tons of stuff with him, right? And I had all these thoughts and ideas about who he was. And then over the last several years, thankfully, before he died, I was able to sit and talk with him. And for him to finally, and this wouldn't have happened early on when he wasn't willing to be vulnerable, he would talk about the pain 
pain of being bullied, of being shoved into a locker, and of being physically and emotionally abused by his stepdad. And when I think about that little boy, I know now, and it makes sense of why he was so hard on us kids to be different because he didn't want us to be picked on and bullied, Mm. but he never said that, right? It was always sit up straight, your fingernails are dirty, Um, you know, you, you know, after I had my child, seven days after she was born, he asked me if I had lost all my baby weight yet because appearance was so important to him. Now, on the surface, people would be like, oh my God, what a jerk. But when you dive into where where's the history of that, appearance was so important because he was that little skinny kid as a boy being, you know, 100 pounds at six foot or however, you know, he's probably mm-hmm. 117 mm-hmm. at six foot. Appearance was so important because it was the very thing of why he got bullied. But he he wasn't able to string all that together enough to not sound like a jerk. Are, are you saying that that makes it okay? No, I make, what I'm saying is it makes it understandable and that I judge him less and then I was able to forgive him. So when I think about him asking me seven days after my baby was born if I'd lost all the weight, I don't have judgment about that statement. I have understanding about that statement and therefore I don't have emotions about it hmm. because I understand where it came from. It's kind of like late like you were talking about it a few minutes ago but like when like your parents or your grandparents and stuff like affect your life you have like no control over that yeah and like that's why people like freak out because it's like things are gonna happen that you can't control or you don't even know yet so do you think are do you ever look at your mom or me and think to yourself oh my god I don't want to be like that. Or, oh my God, is that going to happen? Or do you, do you ever think that? No. And it's okay. Not like that, but like, you think that just by like hearing stories about random people, like things that happen to people, you think that about anybody? Well, I think she is, what I think is pretty powerful about what you're saying, Sydney, is some things that people did that maybe we don't even know, right? This generational and how um, now I might be um, impacted or living through choices that someone else made, my grandparents, for instance. And now I have to, like, I guess, suffer the consequences. And that's the power of understanding, but then taking control of our pattern and our life as breaking the cycle. Whether or not that's an abuse cycle, an addictive cycle. I had a session this morning and he wasn't uh, physically or sexually abused. So not to that degree of trauma, um, and not that it negates his trauma. His mom was not able to meet his emotional or relational needs. And because of that, he was able to, as I teach him about patterns, he then realized that he needs to break that cycle when he has children. Because she did the same pattern that her mom did. And so he needs to be that generation that is able to see the pain, see the tears, welcome in all of those big stuff, right? All of those big feelings. So when the child says, you're the worst parent ever, 
instead of being like, oh my God, that's so horrible. I feel terrible. Now, we might feel that, but it's not about me at that moment. At that moment, it's about the pain that the child is feeling, right? Or when that person, your partner says, you know, I can't believe you don't know me after 25 years, or, you know, I can't believe I'm blah, 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 blah. We might have some emotions about that. And the, and the, the practice of undoing the pattern is, I need to be present to the, what that person's bringing me. And my stuff will, uh, will get addressed, but just not here in this first second. That is a ton of work. I have not perfected this. You could ask my wife. Um, so how do we start to practice being present to what people bring us before we are so present to our own stuff? Because when we're first present to our own stuff, then we get in the way of what the other person is bringing us. But that's so much easier. <laughs> it's so easy to be selfish. Oh, for sure. It's all about me because, you know, my response is first and center. And again, when the more emotional we get, the more deaf I become to what you're really telling me. Well, this has been very heavy. Yeah. Um, it's intriguing. It's heavy. But yet, you know, there's days where we're just like, you know, I don't talk like this. I don't think about this. And we just have fun. And what do you, you do? When, what, what do you do in your off hours that you give yourself? Yeah, well, it depends. I mean, this truly, you know, starting at the age of nine, eight, nine, I mean, I, I live and breathe people like, you know, so for fun, I'm reading a book about people. You know, I'm Joe Rogan is I'm listening to a podcast right now, um, a guy, Naval, and I'm going to butcher his last name. Um, or I'm also reading two books at the same time, Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart and um, a book called um, The Power of Regret. Um, any romances in there or no. any... Uh... <laughs> Any sci-fi? <laughs> no. Um, but I also, you know, focus on what are the rechargers. So I reach anything outside, I can recharge. So um, certainly sitting outside. I love when the pandemic started, I started this. Um, it was like 42 degrees out and I got a sweater on and I was like fully like bundled up with a, a blanket and a coffee that morning. And if I so I try to get 15 20 30 minutes no electronics just my coffee 1% of the time somebody joins me so that means 99% of the time I'm by myself it's 30 minutes of me connecting to whatever happens you know the dew the water the you know I love when the water is on the on the plants in front of me or the birds the sunrise whatever's happening um, and again, anytime I can sit outside, I do it. I actually have a number of clients who do like to do walking sessions or mindful walking, mindful mm -hmm. breathing. So we can sit outside. We just, um, built a patio outside. Um, and it, we just finished that and I just put together a fire pit cause I really want to do, um, burning rituals. So I think, you know, the piece about adulting is there sometimes we do need to take a break because it can be pretty intense and so what are our other rechargers and again hopefully our rechargers aren't um, something that are negative to someone else so Sid does this conversation make you look forward to being an adult um well I don't think 
I enjoy people that much to do this job. <laughs> That's reality. I yeah. Guess. Well, and it's it, it's interesting, you know, Sydney's generation. Um, my daughter, my youngest, is sixteen, and how much they, um, it, you know, my my view is only of my own. You know, necessarily, mm-hmm. I'm speaking from my own children. My experience with them is how less social and relational they are than I was. But are they, or are they, are they as social, but in a different way? I mean, I said, if you don't mind my using you as an example, I, you know, I have a limited amount of time with Sydney. So I'm very, like, I kind of want to pack as much in and I, I, I'll see Sydney sitting on her bed and, and I'm like, oh, are you bored or anything? She's no, I'm with my friends. I'm like, well, you're just sitting there by yourself. And she showed me her phone once, and I think was it Snapchat or something that can show the location of everybody. Yeah, that's Snapchat. And she said, Dad, here's I'm with all my friends. Look at they're all right here. <laughs> and she showed me, and it's got little location markers yeah. mm-hmm. for where all of her friends are. And I thought, okay, I don't get that, and it doesn't make me feel together. But maybe it does you. To be fair, you do have to like purposely share your location with somebody it's not just like automatic well right True. right mm-hmm. but you are socializing with these people i mean maybe it is as it's social but just different. differently social yeah and i am intrigued by the studies about what this would you know how this evolution so when sydney is my age you know what the what the world will be like and how we will or will not connect and but you know if i were a centurion i might be thinking the same thing Right. If I lived a hundred years and I'm looking back and I'm half that age, I'm, you know, as a centurion, they might think what I'm doing is maybe not as social as what they did. But I think everybody of every generation should sit down together. And I've said this, every parent and every child should sit together and listen to the song, Teach Your Children mm. by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. Because it's, it's, it's the only piece of writing that I am aware of that talks about hey old people listen to your kids because Mm. their problems and their situations are real yeah and hey kids listen to your parents because they've been through all of the things that you have been through yeah it is one of the only pieces of writing that i've come across that actually tries to get the two generations to connect and appreciate the other it's like the thing where it's like now it's kind of like people are different sides where it's like the older generations are like leaving all these problems for the younger generations to like clean up Mm. and people are on different sides but it's kind of the case with every generation has problems that are left behind to like the younger generations oh yeah that's powerful on such like opposing sides i guess yeah but it's like that like yeah maybe i didn't like obviously I drive a car, like, I'm probably contributing to, I don't drive a car, but, like, I drive in cars, I probably contribute to global warming, but, like, I didn't, like, start start it, but, like, I'm sure people that are 100 years old were left with problems that... Well, from their parents and their grandparents. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, each, that's really powerful, Sydney, each generation leaves the problem for the next generation to clean up. Wow. That's big. Well, I am bound and determined to end this conversation on something positive. (laughs) 
So anybody, anybody how was the wine, mm. Nicole? Oh, how was the, the wine? wine was very good. We had a lovely very petite good. Syrah. And I got to meet your lovely wife and yep. daughter. Sarah and Sydney. And did you get your homework done? Um, like half of it. <laughs> if it starts with she um. was intrigued by her yeah, by, by our conversation, conversation right? If well, she says she got all of it done, then I'd be like, oh my oh, God, we, we really were really that worried. bad. Yeah. Well, Nicole, I have a feeling we're going to talk a lot oh, more. Yeah. Sometimes with a microphone, sometimes sure. without. Um, thanks for letting us invade your office. Always. Uh, thanks for creating brave spaces. Uh, and thanks for the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been wonderful. What a great conversation with Nicole Miller. And she is a clinical therapist and one of the owners of Brave Spaces here in La Crosse. This was part two of the conversation, by the way, and you can go back and listen to part one if you'd like. It's at AroundRiverCity.com or anywhere you download your podcasts. I'm Ken Cooper. Thanks for being a part of the conversation on Around River City.